0: So to our first guest, one Saturday afternoon on Hampstead Heath, um, I just realised that sounded like I was telling a dirty story, (laughs) Uh, but I'm not. One Saturday afternoon on Hampstead Heath, Michael Turner lets himself into his neighbour's house and he thinks that the house is empty and the house is not empty and everything is about to change for him and for them. I Saw a Man is a compelling literary thriller, and and this is, I admit, an unlikely combination, a poetic meditation on mourning and memory. It is, right? It is. Please welcome back to the salon, Owen Shears!
1: Thank you so much for being here, um, and thank you for asking me to be here, Damien. Um, I'm just going to read three uh, short extracts. Um, The first is the... Um, opening few uh, paragraphs of the book. The uh, second um, extract, I'll explain a bit about now because I'll probably just go straight into that. Uh, and then if things are going well, then I might read a third one as well. Um, so in the second extract, um, as you heard, so Michael Turner is, when we meet him at the start of the book, he's um, an immersion journalist who has moved back from the States where he had a certain amount of success with um, a book. He comes back to Britain, he falls in love with um, a foreign correspondent called Caroline, uh, and they get married and they move to Wales, because that's obviously where everyone goes, <laughs> to complete the perfect story. Um, I'm Welsh, I should probably say that. Um,
0: I like the way you said that the, 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 that went a bit Welsh. That was quite
1: Yes, so, well, yeah, I know, yes. <laughs> It'll get stronger as the night goes on. Um, but after a few months, the seductiveness of her previous life is still calling upon Caroline Um, and one night she tells Michael that she still wants to do just one more job in the field Um, because although she has very much found herself in their settled life there's an I think a crucial part of her that she is still missing from her previous life as a somewhat nomadic reporter but this is the um, opening few paragraphs. The event that changed all of their lives happened on a Saturday afternoon in June. Just minutes after Michael Turner, thinking the Nelson's house was empty, stepped through their back door. Although it was early in the month, London was blistered under a heat wave. All along South Hill Drive, windows hung open, the cars parked on either side, hot to the touch, their seams ticking in the sun. A morning breeze had ebbed, leaving the sycamores lining the street motionless the oaks and beeches on the surrounding heath were also still the heat wave was only a week old but already the taller grass beyond the shade of these trees was bleaching blonde michael had found the nelson's back door unlocked and ajar resting his forearm against its frame he'd leant into the gap and called out for his neighbors josh samantha there was no reply the house absorbed his voice without an echo he looked down at his old pair of deck shoes their soles thick with freshly watered soil he'd been gardening since lunchtime and and had come over straight without washing his knees showing from under his shorts were also smudged with dirt hooking the heel of his left shoe under the toe of his right michael pulled it off as he did the same with the other he listened for signs of life inside the house again there was nothing he looked at his watch It was twenty past three. He had a fencing lesson on the other side of the heath at four. It would take him at least half an hour to walk there. He went to push the door wider, but on seeing the soil on his hands, he nudged it open with his elbow instead, then stepped inside. And I should say that it's Michael's journey through the Nelson's house that really forms, I suppose, the spine narrative through the first half of the book. But from that spine The story looks both forwards to what is about to happen, but also backwards through his backstory. And this is that conversation that I mentioned earlier. She was preparing their dinner when she told him. We got that commission, she said, from the kitchen. Pete said so today. She was chopping vegetables, the tap of her knife on the wooden cutting board, steady and quick. Michael was editing a chapter at the table. That's great, he said, without looking up. Network. It was late April and the evening beyond the French doors still held a hint of the day's light. The previous autumn, without telling Caroline, Michael had planted an arcing sea of daffodil bulbs at the top of the lawn. The letter had shown itself in March before pausing in the spring frosts. Only the previous week had it finally thickened into the bright yellow of full bloom. Yes, she said. Transmission in October, if we can make it work. And can you? Michael struck his pen through... A paragraph and turned the page. I think so. She picked up the chopping board and tipped the slices of courgette and red onion into a saucepan. The uncles agreed to contribute. He's our in, as long as we keep him on board. There was something about the way she'd said our and we that made Michael look up from his editing. The words had been possessive more than inclusive. She was facing away from him, her head bent as she crushed garlic cloves with the flat of the knife. Her hair fell either side of her neck, revealing a nub of her vertebrae at the top of her spine. Somehow, all through the winter, her skin had held its honey colour, as if it knew where she really belonged. "'The uncle,' he said. "'Sorry, love, which one is this again?' She turned to face him. Her expression was like that of a nurse imparting news to a relative.' The one about the boy from Easton, she said, leaning back against the kitchen counter and crossing her arms. She still held the knife in her hands. The scent of the garlic pulp on its blade came to him. The kid who went to Pakistan, his uncles agreed to go back to make the introductions. He remembered now. Three young Muslim boys recruited at a mosque in Bristol. They were only 17, 18 years old. Like backpackers on a gap year, they left for a training camp on the Afghan-Pakistan border. Two of them had returned, but a third had not. Sightline had approached his family about making a documentary. That was all she told him months ago now. He put down his pen. That's amazing, he said. Well done. Sightline must be over the moon. She smiled and looked down for a moment. And she was right. Suddenly it was funny. Suddenly they both knew what was coming, and the knowing of it made her wary attempt at disclosure seem ridiculous. Michael decided to go with a smile, even though a dull ache was already lodging between his ribs. He leant back and put his feet on a chair. But who's on their books who could handle something like that? he said, I wonder. She looked back at him. It would be two weeks, max. When? As soon as we can get visas and travel sorted, and a fixer, but I've she trailed off. But you're already on to that, he said. Yes, she said quietly. And then it wasn't funny anymore. "'as if the humour they discovered had been sucked out of the room with her confirmation. Uh, 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 "'Pushing herself from the work surface, she came to him, "'lifting his legs and placing them on her lap as she sat down. "'It wouldn't be Afghan,' she said. we do it all from Pakistan. Would it be safe?' he asked. "'She shrugged, as safe as it can be. "'She leant forward and took his hands. "'It's a really important one, Mikey.' His uncle, the sources he's mentioned. No one's had this kind of access before. No one. I mean anywhere. We'd be the first. And the group he's with, this kid, they actually want to talk. They want to tell their side of the story and so does he. He knew as he stroked the back of her hand and she squeezed the fingers of his that he could only go with this. He could only ride the contours of her desire and somewhere under that deepening ache in his ribs, that was also what he wanted. It was what they'd promised each other from the start. To help each other to be happy, whatever that meant. He lifted his feet off her lap and leant forward, taking her face in his hands. Just, he said, kissing her lightly, be careful. Her lips were warm and as she kissed him back and she pulled him to her, her mouth still tasted of, of the onion she'd been eating as she cooked. Thank you, she whispered, putting his arm, her arms about his neck. I owe you one, Mikey boy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. So in this last extract, um, we're back with Michael, and although his journey through the house only takes a few minutes, as I said, it's, it sort of forms this, this spine through the first half of the book. Um, he's found the back door um, um, unlocked, and he started to think maybe someone has broken into the house, um, and that's where we meet him. "'A little further up the street, there was a tangle of hidden paths between the ponds and the gardens. "'Michael and Samantha had taken the girls looking for late conkers along them "'just a couple of weeks after they'd all met. "'Now, in summer, the foliage over those paths was overgrown. "'Someone could easily sit there out of sight for hours, "'watching a house for when its owners left. "'Michael felt a chill at the back of his neck. "'He thought about calling out again, but if there was an intruder in the house, "'he didn't want to alert them to his presence.' They'd already have heard him shout for samantha and josh from the door but how much sound had he made since would they think he'd left when he'd got no answer or were they still waiting for him to leave now he looked up the stairway towards where it turned curving behind the wall his pulse was beating in his temples it was only right he should check the other floors of the house to make sure as quietly as he could he walked towards the stairs as he climbed the first few steps Treading on the carpet runner to soften his step, he stared intently at the turn above him, half expecting someone to appear around its corner, which is when it happened. A stab of recognition, so immediate that Michael couldn't say from where it had emanated, whether it had been a taste, a scent, a touch or a sound. All he knew with a painful clarity was that it was her, it was Caroline. As if, just for an instant, he'd woken beside her again and she was alive once more as fully alive as him. Michael froze, stilling himself. He was breathing rapidly, his heart thumping in his ribs. All thoughts of an intruder flooded from him. He looked up towards the turn in the stairs again, his mind trying to gain a purchase on what had just happened. The strength of the sensation had been such that now the only person he expected to come down the stairs was no longer a burglar, but Caroline, miraculously brought back from the dead, first her feet Then her shins, her thighs, her waist, her hands, her arms, her breasts, her neck and at last her face all revealed in the tantalising fractions of her descent. But Caroline did not appear. She did not come to him. There was just the stairway's red runner disappearing around the corner, the dark banister tracing the same curve and the blank whiteness of the wall. Michael listened. The ice cream van in the other street had stopped its tune. The fly in the front room buzzed, paused, then buzzed again. But from beyond the turn in the stairs, there was no sound. He shook his head as if to wake himself. He did not believe in ghosts. In all the months since her death, never once had he thought Caroline was still with him. Her absence had been the most certain thing he'd ever known. But she had been just now. He'd felt her with absolute experience, and he still could. It was fading, the resonance cooling, but it was there, as if he were walking sl- as if he were slowly walking backwards from a fire, retreating into a cold night. But he did not want to walk away; he did not want to grow cold for all its painfulness, he wanted to feel that warmth again, like touching a bruise or a half-healed wound. He wanted the pain of feeling her again. He took another step up the stairs, but then stopped. He wasn't thinking clearly. He was in his neighbour's house. He was late. He should go. If there had been an intruder, then they must have heard him already. Had he made a sound, just now, when he'd caught that sense of Caroline? He didn't know. It had been so sudden, like being hit from behind. Whatever. It no longer mattered. He should go. He should leave by the back door through which he'd entered and close it behind him. But he could not. He could not walk backwards, not while the warmth of what he'd felt was still on him, not when it might be felt again. He had to know where it had come from, that sensation. When it had happened, it had felt as if he'd walked into it, as if its source lay above him. So he must go forward, not back. That was the only way he had to carry on. So placing a foot on the next step, he began ascending the stairs once more. As he did, he listened to the house. It was silent, still, as if he were moving through a photograph, as if he were alone. Thank you very much.
0: Um, and he is, he is not alone. Um, very much not alone. I can't say... Why? Or who else is there? Um, this is one of those books to talk about. I have to be really careful with spoilers because um, it is a book you're all going to be reading and I don't want to waste it for you. But let's just start with the war, mm. which happens kind of on the page and kind of off the page. In Resistance, you wrote about World War II and in Pink Mist, it was you know, three young men from Bristol in Afghanistan. Mm. And this is the war um, on terror and its impact at home.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think I'm quite often asked, you know, why do you write about the war? Yeah, so much. And I should say that it was never anything that I set out to do, and that it very much grew organically through my work. But I, but I think what I have become aware of is that the post-9-11 conflicts have essentially run parallel to my life as a professional writer. You know, I, and and you know, going to school in Abergavenny, I knew boys who joined the army as junior leaders at, at 15 and 3 quarters, as you can in Britain, still the only country... 15 and 3 quarters? I didn't you, know that. You can begin the process of 15 and 3 quarters, join at 16. We're the only country in the EU where you can still do that. So you can effectively join as a child soldier. And there have been some very interesting studies recently about if you do, you're much more likely to suffer from mental stress and PTSD. But because of that, you know, I watch friends go on several tours and then just as a person living in the Western world, we've all been aware of those conflicts. So I think... Even when writing something like Resistance that was set in an alternative version of the Second World War, Mm. the motivation to write that was still very much about that being a prism through which to tackle ideas of occupation and insurgency. Um, But with this book, which actually grew in a very different way to anything I've ever written before... How? Well, it it began with that image of a man entering his neighbour's house thinking it's empty, and we, the reader... Knowing it's not, but then I think, for a writer, that tantalising idea of being able to lay out a cast of characters, who could be in there. So it literally began with that image,
0: um, which did is. Did you know who was going to be in the house did when you started it? I'm
1: trying to remember.
0: I think <laughs> That's I. That's d- a no. No, did you? No, I had no idea. <laughs> I. Uh, uh,
1: um, no, actually, I think I did.
0: You did. I did. I yeah. did.
1: There were times when I thought maybe it should change. Uh-huh. You know, because I think ideas at the start of a novel or writing very frequently shift under your hands, and they should. But actually that one stuck, surprisingly. And I think as with a lot of things I write, you write it to answer answer questions, you you take questions into it. But certainly as the book grew, I realised I did want to try, I'm not sure, sure that I've succeeded, but to write an intimate novel about our, our globalised world. So it felt important to me that the story would be kick-started, that something something that happens in the war on terror mm. i'm not sure how much we're saying um it's your book well <laughs>
0: <laughs> i mean i mean we can talk i mean caroline's yes. dead yes. i think yes. we know that yes i um, just gave that one
1: away sorry. she's no more yeah. and i think actually it's known because it's in the reviews and stuff that she's accidentally killed in um a drone strike mm. so there are several sort of layers of distance there's a the distance of the drone strike coming back to this leafy sort of hamster novel type environment um but then also, there's the distance between that drone pilot in the deserts outside Las Vegas, and which is
0: completely fascinating. Uh, yeah, because mm. in the book you talk about the. I mean, it's like the, you know the the war of words. This idea that we've successfully convinced ourselves that 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 these are unmanned um, uh, aircraft, and in actual mm. fact they are manned. And you talk about Major Daniel McCullough, and you give him you give him a voice, you give him a story.
1: Yeah, well, I became I became fascinated, and I guess this is sort of one of those examples where one project bleeds into the next. Um, in my work with uh, recently wounded veterans and reading up about PTSD, I was really interested that drone pilots suffer a lot more from PTSD than fighter pilots ever did. But as soon as you look at their lives, you understand why. Firstly, 90% of their working, their working life is to witness, is to follow people, to learn their habits, to see their families and then maybe kill them, but then also witness what their ordinance does, whereas a fighter pilot wouldn't even hear. What their bombs do. So there's that aspect, and then there's the domestic aspect, and this is the fascinating idea that some fighter pilots become drone pilots, as uh, Daniel does in mm. the book, to stop the war interfering with his domestic life. But of course, every evening he comes back and reads the kids a story. He's bringing the war and what he's seen back into that domestic sphere. And one of the most powerful lines I read, because there are some, there've been some very interesting whistleblowers, ex. Uh, drone uh, sensor operators and pilots um, who talk about what they've done and uh, one of these young guys just said I wish my eyes would rot and I think that's where the character of Daniel was was born but you're right about the war of words they're officially called unmanned aerial vehicles they're more manned than anything that's been flown before because there's the pilot, the sensor operators and then there are analysts and people in the White House and people watching all over the world
0: yeah, I, I had no idea that there were so many people involved in every single decision. Mm. And the thing about the, the, the observing was really shocking. It was like stalking. I didn't yeah. know that they had to use the same kit to go out and uh, observe people and find out where they go and what they do and who they see and make these decisions. I sort of thought somehow a decision was made elsewhere mm. and they just kind of pressed a button. You know, mm. I was very very naive about it. And, uh, and you show the impact on, on, on him and, and his family as well, which I think is very humane. He's not just a bad guy.
1: No, 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 you know, a, a, and of course, as with anything in conflict, I mean, you know, <laughs> the motivations and the effects are very, very complex. I mean, I've always become, oh, I guess over the last few years, I've become fascinated how conflict is a very powerful, anonymizing force, you know? Mm-hmm. you know. People become soldiers and civilians become refugees and victims, and of course, that's partly what writers do, is that they rediscover the human. Um, so yes, I think it was important that both, he felt that, he was actually perhaps doing right hmm. and uh, doing good and also trying to protect his family as well. But there's only so much that the human mind c- can take. And especially, you know, ex-fighter pilots are intelligent people. Um, so they will think... But. To go back to the idea about the decision-making, of course, what's fascinating is that we still don't really know how all the decision-making yeah, is did made. You,
0: how did you research this? Because it seems like you had a level of access or a level of knowledge that I haven't been privy to before.
1: I'd love to pretend that the US Air Force went, oh, you're writing? Great, come yeah. in.
0: <laughs> this is what we do
1: in the CIA. is what we do here. No, um, I was very lucky. There was a fantastic... Um, academic in Vancouver who's got a great blog called, uh, I'm going to forget, it, something like Geographical Possibilities or sort of that and he is writing a lot about contemporary warfare um, there have been these whistleblowers, you can go onto YouTube and you can watch videos of strikes and hear some of the recorded stuff um, so I got a lot from online, I did but in the end I'm a, I am am a big believer in, in turning up so actually having written uh, Daniel's story, I did, I took the opportunity, I was filming for a few days in New York Flew out to Las Vegas Persuading my very pregnant wife It's for the novel, mm-hmm. it's research You know, as I stayed in the MGM gra- Anyway um, I know, uh, And actually it was important to stay in Las Vegas Because this is where these guys live And it's a surreal place anyway Yes. And you suddenly realise it's a place where America Brings the world to America As a version And that's what's happening in these ground control stations Out in the desert So I did drive out to Creech Air Base Obviously, couldn't get in, but I was amazed that, considering how clandestine some of these operations are, I was driving up the highway, and there were some drones—a um, Predator and um, a Reaper drone. They've got lovely names, um, so there's nothing euphemistic there. Yeah. Um, and they, you know, and they were circling and practicing above the freeway. And then I hung out in the bar in the casino next door, uh, and and uh, um, eavesdropped on uh, uh, men and women because you know, there are lots of women pilots. So sort of coming off their shifts, yeah.
0: and that that scene makes it into the book. I mean, that's well, not not yeah. not that quite that place, but they go to a bar yeah. for a kind of decompression. The writing uh, suddenly becomes afters. more
1: realistic and actually <laughs> in detailed. No, actually, I must admit, it was a great lesson in actually trusting your your uh, I don't know your imagination and the power also of Google Earth. You know, yeah. uh, where you can drive up a highway. I know that um, uh, David Nichols has you are written very interestingly. Oh, hello. I um, you know, was writing about this in The Guardian recently, and I think it's fascinating how technology changes the way that a mm. writer visits a, a place. And I was encouraged, because as I drove up the highway, it was kind of how I'd imagined. But what I couldn't have made up were the conversations in that bar and the... The atmosphere in the bar and the other people in the bar.
0: Yeah. Um, one of the other kind of big contemporary stories th- that that makes it into the book is the financial crisis. So when Michael comes to Hampstead, uh, he makes friends with Samantha and, and Josh, who are his sort of, uh, neighbours, and mm. Josh works for Lehman Brothers. Yes, um, that slightly
1: sort yeah. of gives it away. So it's uh, like foreshadowing <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> what's going to happen. But know.
0: but I mean, it's it's really interesting because you know he he his his view on it is completely different from it. Again, any other view that you know that I'd read, where he's just like, ah, oh, these frat boys they've ruined it for everybody else yeah. um, you know he's kind of pissed off that, that you know that they've been that they've been rumbled and mm. um, I know that for your other books you've interviewed people did you interview somebody in a kind of financial sector to, to to get that perspective
1: I did um through a friend of a friend I was able to talk to someone who was actually working for Lehman's when it all happened um and it seems as though that was a very dominant note ...in the British office, because the British office was actually profitable... ...and was, you know, I'm sure that this is a point of contention... ...and this was, you know, he was speaking from a very specific Mm. position... ...but of course, perhaps in a way that is actually too neat in the novel... ...but you realise that it did all tie together... ...because it was the foreclosures and the subprime mortgages... ...on the outskirts of Las Vegas and elsewhere in America... ...that were driving this, and he very much felt that his team, at least... ...because of course there are teams within teams, had been left exposed... Um But interviewing him was crucial, because a bit like we don't see the pilots behind the drones. you know, when the financial crash happened, it was the failure of a system. We didn't mm. necessarily see the individuals. but I did um, speak to him, and you know and it it was fascinating to be told that the first he heard about it was on the radio. He had no idea that Lehman's was going, and then this incredible sort of morning when everyone came into the office knowing it was over. And he said there was so much exit chatter and everyone was trying to work out. He used that expression, exit yeah, chatter. Yeah, exactly. And and he said, you know, everyone's trying to work out who do you align with? Who's going to go somewhere else? Who's not? Who is it over for? Who's going to, you know? Yeah. And of course, I like the fact that Josh just chooses in the book to just go, I'm just going to get out the whole thing. Um...
0: Mm. Is that what the person in real life did or was that a depart, an imaginative departure? Uh,
1: y- he didn't get out of the whole thing entirely, but he made a significant shift. Mm. Yeah, yeah, he did.
0: When you interview people and you use them in some way as a basis or an inspiration for a character, do they then kind of check out the book afterwards and sort of come back and let you know what they think? <laughs> or do they just kind of forget it? They've spoken, they've kind of confessed and they've offloaded and you've gone off.
1: I mean... It's a real mixture, because when I talk to people, I explain... I mean, especially with something like Pink Mist, which was based on around 30 interviews with recently wounded service personnel and their families, I was explaining that this is not a piece of verbatim writing or verbatim Mm. theatre, and Mm. I'm going to distill it through my imagination and through poetry. But the experiences that I give my characters are also theirs. So I kind of say, you know, you talk to me and I will do what I do, but I've I've always shown people...
0: Um, what before publication yeah, yeah Really?
1: yeah, and i mean i've never ha- I've, I've never faced the situation of someone saying you can't use that, so I don't know what I'll do yet in that situation, but um you yeah, know, so in this case, I was keen to send you know those chapters mm. to the person I spoke to um, and i'm not quite sure why I'd do that, uh but it just felt it, it felt it felt very natural i mean and I think it doesn't make it any easier for the people involved so the main character in Pink Mist, a lot of his experiences are those of um, a young guy called Lyndon who was blown up in Afghanistan, broke his back in four places, had insomnia for two years with a very specific you know, vision of these Americans on fire. And I used that in the mm. book. Mm. Um, and he came to the first reading of it and, and I said, look, I, I, wow. I, I'm going to read that section. And he said, fine, you should do that. And I did ask him, you know, what was that like, and he had a fascinating response, because he said it it did feel like being torn apart inside all over again, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Mm -hmm. And I think because of the subject matter that these projects have worked in, people tend to be frustrated with a lack of nuance in how their stories are told. And I think if I'd said to anyone, I'm gonna put what you've told me, absolutely non-fiction on the page, there might have been some reservations. But if you tell someone you're fueling an imaginative story that hopefully is going to make the general conversation mm. more layered, more nuanced, then I've been very lucky. People are incredibly generous. Yeah.
0: I'm going to open it up to our incredibly generous audience. Of course, Sylvia's hands got up there like a toaster, um, and um, I'll take one other, one Beautiful other question. <laughs> Thank you very much, um, Sylvia. Go for it. Hello. Hello. You mentioned post actually chatting with a doctor who specializes in post-traumatic stress disorder and he says that the main form of treatment when someone is reliving it is to say okay you're in the room while they're reliving it so do, do something that's con- as a writer you're going back to these particular mm. what's the best way as a writer for you when you're writing it's like okay step away from it and um the, the question is to do with post-traumatic stress disorder mm. and writing, I guess, and reliving the idea that reliving is, is a therapy for people who, have, who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think all the characters and um, all the people in the books tonight have it on, 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 on some level. So, mm. I mean, uh, is did you feel like what you were doing might be part of their therapy for them? And also, was it traumatic secondarily f- for you?
1: Um, well, to answer the first part of the question, this was something that... I very much learnt, and I should say that I did those interviews with the Wounded Service Personnel for um, a stage production, which ended up being called The Two Wheels of Charlie F, which from the outset was designed as a recovery project first and foremost, and as a play secondary, but we soon realised that it was only going to work as a recovery project if it worked as a play, and looking back it was a very, very risky project, because the idea was to uh, create the play based upon the experiences of these people. And then 20 of them would act in the cast. And there were five professional actors and 20 of them. Um, and we w- were not mental health experts. We were not psychologists. We had an MOD psychologist in the wings. But it turns out that, you know, by luck and a bit of judgment, that exactly what you describe is what happened in that process. Because it seems as though now the most successful form of uh, treatment is not just to relive, but to reimagine and then recapture. So the fact that our piece of theatre wasn't verbatim mm. ended up being vital. So even though that these guys, so we had um, a young guy called Dan, who lost both legs at the age of 18, the youngest uh, British service personnel to, to ever have that experience. And he's playing a character called Ray, uh, um, a Leroy. And on stage, and in the end, although it was only meant to happen twice, they did 125 shows. Um, wow. He he had to recreate that moment that he lost his legs. And we were always deeply worried about this. But because his character was here, it was this distance that made it possible. Mm. And we were lucky enough, we had two separate um, independent studies of the process. And thankfully they both said, it works. So, So yes, it was something that I discovered in the process. For myself personally, I thought I was fine. But I did the interviews in a very, very condensed period of about a month. Um, and then one night I went to a friend's dinner party and I was irrationally angry with everyone there. Um, I just wanted to shake everyone. I'd heard so many stories of damage, not just to the soldiers, but then these uh, concentric rings of damage that go through families and mm. children and communities. Mm. To the extent that the host actually sort of took me aside and said, look, you're being a real buzzkill. Can you um, mm-hmm. either cheer up or go home? Uh, so I went home. Yeah,
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I'm fine. fine yeah. You are, you are fine. You're more than fine. The book is incredible. I have to say, I know that we've not been able to tell you exactly what those things are that happen in it, but it is a book that I read with my hand over the next page a lot of the time because I really didn't want to know um, what was what was going to happen. Um, it's incredible. Enjoy it. Thank you for being here. Oh, and cheers. Thank you very much. Just yeah, <laughs> a nice man, man yeah. hand. <laughs> yeah i